Appreciate it. Those songs are wonderful songs that really set the table for what we are going to be looking at today in the book of Titus. So I would encourage you to take your Bibles, open them to Titus 3, as we get close to finishing up our study of this wonderful book. As you're turning there and getting settled, I have went back into the library to uh, find a few books. If, if anything, as, you know, as we're studying Titus and you're feeling the challenge of, of walking in the grace that we've been given, and if, and if you feel that sense of challenge, you say, are there other resources that could be helpful for me? Um, I found three books in the library that I thought you know, would be interesting if, if you're saying, hey, I'd like to really build on this study of Titus together. Um, and so let me just highlight these for you because, uh, and they're, well, they'll be up here, I guess, after the service, but, uh, but we have them here. The first one is this. It's, uh, it's called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. D.A. Carson wrote this book, and what he did is he went through all the prayers of Paul, and he just studies them, unpacks them, and, uh, and, and it's really a wonderful study of the prayers of Paul and, and really touching on many of the things that we've been looking at in Titus and, and, uh, and really well done and, and very devotional. Uh, many years ago, I, I used this as a devotional book in my life, and it just was really a, a powerful resource. So that's one of them. The second one is Martin Jones, Lloyd-Jones, did a, a study on the cross. And uh, many of the themes we'll be looking at today in Titus are here in this study of what did Christ accomplish on the cross. And, uh, and, and that one I would highly recommend. And a third one actually is a, a year-long devotional. So I don't know if you can check this out for a year or not. But, <laughs> but at least you can look at it and maybe decide even if it's something you'd want to buy. Uh, Jerry Bridges, uh, um, it's, a, it's a daily devotional uh, uh, out of his work about holiness. And what does it mean to be holy? And, uh, and just it, there are 365 just short little excerpts from his book on just walking holy. And it could be a, a nice little addition to a, to a read each day of just reading a thought from here. They're just really short for one day and uh, challenging things just, again, to build on what we've been studying in Titus. So these are in the library, and, uh, and there's more back there. And uh, if you grab J.D. after the service, he might be able to recommend a few for you as well. But... Uh, but I would recommend these for you. Uh, so I'm going to put them right here. And uh, if you want to grab them, you can grab them. So, well, we're looking here at uh, Titus chapter 3 here this morning. And today we're specifically looking at verses 3 through 7. But uh, before we uh, get into the text here this morning, let me just pray here for us. God, I thank you for... Uh, being reminded of your mercy this morning. What great songs that we sung just to be refreshed and to be thought about how to reflect on our walk with you. Thank you, God, that we are stand in your mercy and in your grace, not as perfect in our own righteousness, but being perfected by yours. And thank you, God, that we can just study these truths together. I pray, God, that even our time here today would re- refresh us uh, as we stand in uh, the shadow of the cross. Thank you, God, for the privilege of being together. May our time together conform us to the image of Christ and refresh our souls. In Christ's name, amen. You know, I've, I think I've shared this story before, but I want to remind you of it. Um, it was, when I was 17 years old, I was out at 
up in the Michigan, swimming in Lake Michigan with some friends. And uh, the, wet, the waves were kind of heavy that day. And uh, I actually don't know how to swim. I'm really not a swimmer. I, I never learned how to swim. And, but we were out, I was out with some, some friends, and, and we were, you know, you know, body surfing in Lake Michigan. The waves were pretty heavy. And I got caught by a riptide, an undertow, and it pulled me out really far out into Lake Michigan, and I started to drown. And this guy came up out of nowhere, totally true, pulled me up and knocked, put me on a sandbar. And I was throwing up because I'd swallowed water, and I was like, oh, scared to death. And I'm like, you can help me get back, you can help me get back. And he goes, no, just get on your back, and the waves will carry you in. I said, really? No, you got to take me back. Like, I'm holding on to him, you know, it was a really emotional moment. And uh, he goes, no, I'm not taking you back. Just get on your waves, get on your back, and the waves will take in. And uh, after kind of arguing for a while, I did that. Now, if we were around a campfire, we could speculate, where did this guy come from, right? But we're not going there. That's not the point of it. But I want to acknowledge that I know this is what you're thinking, and I'm still wondering, how did this guy get out in the middle of Lake Michigan to bring me up? Who was this, you know? And, and like I said, next campfire, we can speculate on that. But it really did happen, and I really did put on this sandbar, and I really did get on my back, and I really did float into shore. And when I got there, I was shaking and nervous and sick and whatever. can't remember now, but I just remember I was not in a good place. And, uh, and uh, so I got there. Now, that happened when I was 17 years old. Now, I want you to, now that you know what happened, I want you to kind of do a little make-believe with me here. Let's pretend like today was a reunion of all of those friends that were there and like, in, in Michigan, and they were here on a Sunday morning. And you know that this is what happened to me, that the riptide pulled me out, a guy rescued me, he gave me, told me what to do, and I got back into shore. So you know that that's the story, and that really is what happened. But let's just say for a moment, I'm with all of my friends that were there that day, and you are listening to me talk to them, and I'm talking to them, and I'm saying this to them. You know, you guys only went out a little bit in the water. I swam way far out to where that sandbar was and swam all the way back. You guys call yourself swimmers? You're not swimmers. I'm the swimmer. I was way far out there, and I went back. I swam three times the amount you swam. Now, if you overheard me telling that story, what would you be thinking? You'd be like, liar, you know. You didn't swim out there. You were sucked out by an undertow. You shouldn't have been in the water to begin with if you can't swim. Especially with those big signs, warning, don't swim, heavy undertows, and we went out and did it anyways. Right? All the dumb things we did, and we got, and I, you know, God saved me at that moment, right? I mean, I wouldn't have been here without God. And, and God, you know, somehow, whoever this person was, saved me, told me what to do to get back. God allowed that to happen. I cannot could never stand there and claim to be a world-class distance swimmer. Even though, on that day, I covered more distance than my friends. Right? I did. I did cover more distance than them. But I could never do that. It would be really crazy to think that. Now, just as crazy as it would be for me to say, I'm a distance swimmer because I went further than my friends and came back further... And just as crazy as it would be for me to stand there and condemn them for not swimming as far as me, 
and not covering as much distance as I cover, is as crazy as it is for Christians to condemn the culture, the pagan culture. It's just as crazy. To stand and say, oh, I cannot believe what they do out there. I cannot believe the laws they pass. I cannot believe what they're doing. It's just as crazy. You say, why? Why? Because apart from the mercy and grace of God, I would have passed dumber laws, right? If I were president, could you imagine how bad the world would be? Could you imagine? I'd be up there telling jokes at the State of the Union, right? I mean, it would be bad. I would not be a good president. I couldn't make these kind of decisions. See, this is what Paul is saying. This is what all of chapter 3 is about. You cannot, as a Christian, stand in condemnation over the culture. As we learned last week, instead, submit, serve, speak with kindness, gentleness, and mercy towards others. Why? The only reason why I covered more distance than anyone of my friends on that day in swimming is because God saved me. There is no way I could have made it back. There is no way. And the only reason why I am not doing some of the things that's going on in the culture around me is because God saved me. That's it. And I stand as one redeemed by grace and mercy, not by works that I have done in righteousness. This is what we're going to see today because we looked last week at verses 1 and 2 when he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That's a tall order and he is referencing the world when he says all people, everyone, everywhere. This is the operating system of the Christian in all of our engagements. And now the question is, well, why? Why would I do this? And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that the only reason why we are able to stand where we stand and do what we do is because of grace and mercy. Because of the loving kindness of our God. And this should motivate us to walk in humility towards God and humility towards others. Now the way Paul does this and the way he explains this is that he says, first he he shows us, starting in verse 3, what our old nature was. He wants to tell you, this is who you were when you were born. This was your state. And then he goes into your new nature and he says, "Now, now I want to show you what God did for you. And this is supposed to remind us and give us the rationale as to why we want to react and act towards the world the way that we do. And I want us to see this today because this is the kind of stuff that makes the impact, as we've talked about the past couple weeks on deep culture. If we really want to be culture-making people, if we really want to have an impact at the culture, we do it at this level, at the level of motives, at the level of heart, at the, at the level of, of the way we treat others, not at just the surface stuff that we see. So let's look here. Let's look at what Paul says when he talks about our old nature. Just look at verse 3 with me. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
slaves to various lusts or various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now what I want you to notice is verse 3 begins with the word for, and I like to point those out to you because whenever you're studying the Bible and you see a, a, a thought beginning with the word for, it means a rationale is coming. And whenever you see a word for, you always want to go to the statement before it that helps you understand what this verse means. Like if you just read verse 3 and you see it begins with the, with the word for, you got to go back up and say, okay, what was the thought that was just before this? Because verse 3 is going to explain why you should do what you were just told. And so we were just told, and I just read it a second ago, to be submissive, to be obedient, to be ready for good work, to watch our tongue, treat people with kindness. And now he's going to say, now here's why. And in fact, whenever you see a word for, you could actually insert in there, here's why. And it would help you understand the kind of the flow. And so he says all this, and then verse 3 says, now here's why. And then what he does is he gives a list of things about our old nature. I've taken this list and I've divided it up into three sections so you can kind of get the heart of it. And the reason why I've divided this list up into three sections is this. You read through this list, what you don't want to do is kind of treat it like a checklist. Like, yeah, I've done that, but I haven't done that. And I've done that, but I haven't done that. And that one doesn't apply to me, but this one might. You don't want to do that. He writes these things in, in very extreme statements. But the reality is this. All of these sins are embedded within the sin nature. I, I have done all of these sins. It might not be as dramatic as somebody who, who's you know, perfected that skill of that sin. But I have done these in their roots, in their root form. And, and when you look at these things and you say, well, I don't know if I've actually done that or done it this way. It's not about degrees. It's about whether or not the essence of it is there. And so what I've done is I've kind of divided it up into three sections so that you can understand the natural state that a person's born in. And this natural state is the state of every one of us when we entered this world. And this is the reason why I can't stand with my finger pointed against the culture blaming that. I can't just stand there and start criticizing everything that happens. Because this is my, this is how I was born. And the only reason why I'm not doing some of the things the culture is doing is because of the grace and mercy of God. Okay, so let's look at it. Here's the division. The first thing I want to show you is that, 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 that the natural man, when, when we enter the world, and when I say man, I mean man in the generic sense, humans. The natural man is darkened in his understanding. That's the first key. He's darkened in his understanding. And the, th the first three statements really talk about this idea of being darkened in your understanding. Darkened in your understanding means that, that you're not seeing the world correctly. You're not processing the world correctly. Okay, look at the first thing he says, that, that we were foolish, right? For we were once ourselves foolish. Foolish means we live as if our wisdom was better than God's. In many ways, a fool doesn't acknowledge the existence of God, doesn't want to follow God, doesn't want to do things God's way. You could say this, a fool is ignorant. They just do not follow God. They don't recognize his path. When a problem comes, their first thought isn't, what does God want me to do? Their first thought is, what do I need to do to make myself feel better? Right? That's a fool. 
Second thing he says, that we're disobedient. We, living life as if God's way was wrong. And so you come to somebody with the Bible and you say, the Bible would call you to do this here. What? You can't tell me that. Right? That, that, that thing that riles up against the Word of God. It's called disobedience. He says that's in our heart. And then finally that we're led astray. When someone comes with the wrong path, we followed it. We had no discernment. We were deceived. Now here's what he's saying. Natural man, he's darkened. He's darkened. He's a fool. He cannot live as if God's will is more important. Doesn't want to follow God's way. And when somebody comes along with a plan that's against God, they go, that makes sense. Let's do that. That's the heart. Now here's the reality. Isn't that true of all of us? When we're born? And this, don't you sense at times a fight even against that as, as the flesh sometimes even riles up, even if you're in Christ today? The push that comes from the Word of God and the pushback that comes. But he's saying, listen, this is who you were. You came in the world darkened. Second thing he says is that you came in the world depraved. Depraved in your actions. Notice what he says. Slaves the various passions and pleasures. Our sinful passions ruled us. We lived only to please ourselves, to make ourselves happy. We were bond slaves to lust and to pleasure. Our happiness was the ultimate goal. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say this to me. God wouldn't want me to do this because it makes me unhappy. As if our happiness is the end goal of life. This is what it's all about. God, Jesus died on the cross to make you happy. right? That, that's kind of what we want to hear. Not Jesus died to make you holy. We don't want to hear that. We want to hear he made us happy. That's, that's the flesh, right? Natural man, he's depraved. And so, so without Christ, without any spirit convicting us and the word of God changing us, we follow those passions. We follow those lusts. And then notice what he says. Not only that, we pass our days in malice and envy. You know what happens? We develop a life of bitterness and jealousy. Somebody wrongs us, and the next thing you know, we're writing them out of our life. It's over. I'm done with them. You know what they did? Here's their list. And on and on it goes. That's what it means. Malice means you're just starting to develop a bitterness towards the person, or you, you pass your life in envy. It's not fair that they have this. It's not fair that they're there. It's not fair that they've given, you know, I work so hard, and they get this, and they live on us, and I didn't have a home like they had. Envy, right? just goes on and on. All that stuff. And what he says passing our days means that we just start living that as a pattern of thought. He says, that's who you were. You were depraved in your actions. So you're darkened, you're depraved, and then finally, divisive. Notice what he says. Hated by others. We went through life developing enemies. Because we live this way, we end up with people who don't like us. And then finally, hating one another, we go through life actually developing such a hatred that we can't even be in the same room with people. And so it's division. Division. You always know when, when the flesh is at work because you start becoming divisive. Now we're going to see n- next week, Lord willing, where proper divisive, how you, what things you should pull away from. But he said in general, the general operating system of the flesh is to always pull away, always create division, Always try to just do it your own way. Forget it. Forget you. I'm out of here. I'm doing it my way. I don't want to work towards reconciliation. I just want to hate you, and I know you hate me, and let's just go in our own corners, right? This is division. So he says, this is it. Now he says, this is you. 
he said, uh, I'm telling you to be submissive, and I'm telling you to be obedient, and I'm telling you to, to, to avoid quarreling and to be gentle with the world and, and to, to show courtesy to every human being you meet. Why? Because you were darkened. You were depraved. And you were divisive when you came into the world. You didn't swim further than your friends. You were saved. You didn't cover more distance than them. You were brought back. You couldn't have done this on your own. You would have drowned. This is what he's saying here. And so he's saying, listen, you want to engage people with this because of the way you were. Remember who you were. Walk with humility before man. Now, what he's going to do now is shift now from the old nature to the new nature. Because he's not just going to build this on the negative. He's also going to build it on the positive. Right? So there was the negative side of this. This is how you were born. Walk with humility. But now what he's going to say is, he's going to say, now I want to show you how God engaged you when you were in this state. I want to show you how God treated you. I want to show you all the things that God did when you were darkened, depraved, and divisive. I want to show you how God responded to you. Okay, very, very uplifting. And this is like kind of, you know, we should have a choir behind me just kind of singing hallelujah, amen through the whole thing because this is really encouraging, really powerful. Just let's read through 4 through 7 as a whole and then we'll kind of unpack it here. He says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You could spend the rest of your existence on earth just studying that passage right there. That is so rich. I'm not even going to do it justice. We're not even, I mean, we are going to like skim the top here. This is so powerful. What he's saying is he's saying, listen, in fact, notice that first word there. Again, those, these conjunctions are always important to me, but it's a contrast, right? Isn't that what, what that does? It's a contrast. And so he's saying, I want you to be servants and submissive and serve people and all of this and be obedient. Here's the reason why, because you were darkened and depraved and divisive, but here's what God did. Here's how God responded to you in this state. Now, isn't our job as Christians to reflect the gospel? Yes. So here's the gospel. We're to live a life worthy of the gospels, Paul says in Philippians 1.27. Here's what that would look like. And in order to do this, what is the gospel? What has God done? So just like I grouped the sins, let's group what God has done. Let's just take this thing and group it together. Okay, and there's about five things or so in here that you could kind of just group and see God's hand at work about how he saved us. Here's the first one. Notice, he saved us by his goodness. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God our Savior appeared. Paul said, now when this goodness appeared. Now remember, the, the word appeared shows up a few times in Titus. Give you a little study tip. You can put it in your notes 
Write it in your Bible if you want. Whenever the word appears, shows up in Titus, what it means is it's like a supernatural manifestation. It would be like if all of a sudden the roof just opened up and angels started pouring into the ceiling here. You'd go, whoa, hey, that's what appeared would mean, right? And that whole feeling you would have and freaking out and all that, that's what appeared means. It means something so huge, so amazing. And he's saying this, here is what kind of just supernaturally showed up. And the first one is goodness. But when the goodness of God our Savior appeared. Now the word goodness, what does that mean? Let me kind of give you a little understanding of that. We talked about it last week. It means uh, when something is good, it means it doesn't lack anything. Goodness as a virtue means if, you, if I say this person's a good person, you could mean describing them, they lack nothing. If they have goodness in their, as a character trait, it means that wherever they go, they make up for what's lacking. They make up for what's lacking. So if there's anger in a room, these people don't add more anger. They bring peace because that's what's lacking. If there's fear in the world, they, they, they bring stability. Why? Because that's what's lacking. Uh, goodness is the virtue to bring to the room what is the greatest resolution, the greatest need. What did we need, man? We needed to be saved, right? We needed to be brought out of this darkened, depraved, and divisive mindset that we had. And God is good. And when he operates out of goodness, he brings to the world what it lacks. This is why some translations have the word kindness. It's the idea of being kind. It's the idea of being generous, giving. So, so some would put the word kindness, and you might have a translation out there that says kindness. Same thing, it's a good use of that word because it carries the idea of giving, generosity. So, so you could say this way, but here's what happened. Supernaturally, what came on the scene was God saw what the need was and started to meet it. Okay, that's what he did. That's the first thing. Saved us by his goodness. Notice in the next one, he saved us by his loving kindness. Loving kindness is an interesting word. It's one word, actually. It's a word that actually could be translated as pity. But when you think of pity, I don't want you to think about pity like in a, in a sense of like, I pity you, okay? But it's more like this. If you've ever traveled in a third world context, you'll know this experience. You go down the street and you see a family living in a cardboard box and kids playing in squalor, drinking dirty water, and the very first instinct you have is you just want to give them your wallet. It's like, you're just like, I have too much. Take everything I have right now. It's all yours. Take it. Right? You, you want to do it. You have such pity. You, you just, you look at that situation and you cannot, you are so discontent with what you have that you just want to give it all away. That's, what this, that's the emotional side of this word. What it means is this. God saw us as depraved, as darkened, as divisive. And his first response was, I can't believe how ungrateful they are after all I've done for them. I've given them a world. I've given them rain. I give them food. I, I give them a house. I give them a family. And they're still fighting me? You didn't do that. Here's what he did. He looked and he said, wow, they're going to bear my wrath if something doesn't happen. 
They're going to spend an eternity in hell if somebody doesn't intervene. I better intervene. That's what he's saying. This is what appeared. He says, now, wouldn't you? How God reacted to your sin was with goodness and loving kindness. That's what showed up on the scene. Right? Amen. Exactly. It was not hailstorms of sulfur pouring from heaven. Even though we were darkened and depraved and divisive in our thing. He saved us because he's loving. He's good. He's filled with loving kindness. This is why he's called God our Savior. Right? The one who will redeem us. Okay? But let's keep going. We see his goodness. We see his loving kindness. What else is there? Mercy. Look at verse 5. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He saved us. There's the main point. He pulled us out of that mess. I don't want to condemn the world because God pulled me out of it by his mercy. I want to stand on the sidelines and say, man, I, I need to have that same heart of compassion. This is how God's responding to the world. He's not standing there pointing his finger going, I can't believe they just did that. Can you believe they did that? Can you believe the law they just passed? Rah, 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 rah. He's saying, you know what? we got to send someone <laughs> to redeem them. This is what I'm about. I'm filled with love. I'm filled with mercy. He saved us. Notice, not because of works done by us in righteousness. You know, when God saw the darkened, depraved, divisive mindset we had, he didn't come down from heaven with a checklist and say, you, you got to measure up to all 15 of these points, and you got till this date. And, and then once you reach this date, uh, if you're not there, it's over. He didn't do that. That's why he's saying it's not by this. You, you were not delivered from this state because of something that you did. Right? If it was works done in righteousness, then you could actually point your finger and say, I can't believe you passed that law. If I really did swim out all the way out to that sandbar in Lake Michigan and swam all the way back in that weather, I could stand there and say to those people, I swam further than you. But it's not by the works done by us in righteousness. We don't have any righteousness. We're depraved. We couldn't do it. But notice, we were saved according to his own mercy. Now, if you are a Bible underliner, okay, if you're, if you're a Bible underliner, and that's not a bad thing, by the way, Okay, um, get out of this building. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Sounds like that's where that's headed, right? If you're a Bible underliner, please sit over there. On Sunday. Um, if you're a Bible underliner, you should underline according to. You should underline that. That is really important. That little phrase, when you see according to, anytime you see according to in the Bible, that, that you should get your attention. You should circle it, underline it, do whatever, point it out. It is so important. Let me explain to you why. We've talked about this in the past, so this might seem like an old hat for some of you. But according to is a, is a way of measuring something. Okay, so here's the illustration I like to use. If, a, if somebody who was worth a trillion dollars came in and said, I'm going to give you some of my money, you've got two options. One, I'll give you money out of my wealth. Second, I'll give you money according to my wealth. Which one would you take, given the whole point of the sermon? Hopefully you know which one to take even if grammatically you don't know, which one would you take according to? Exactly. And here's the reason why. Uh, the reason why is this. 
Out of just means it's out of. He could just give you a penny. That's out of. Just one penny. According to means that the gift measures up against the worth. It reflects the worth. Somebody's worth a trillion dollars, and they give you according to their wealth. It means you're going to get billions of dollars because the gift has to match the amount. He says, he saved us according to his own mercy. How merciful is God? God is so merciful. He is so merciful that the mercy reflects it. Now, why is this important? Share this story with you. It's maybe old for some of you, but I, uh, at the other, when I was in Alaska one time, I was sitting in my office and this guy walked in off the street, didn't know who he was. And uh, he had just gotten an AIDS test. He was waiting for the results. And uh, so he walked in and he said, hey, getting an AIDS test, I'm waiting for the results and I feel like I need to confess my sins to someone. And so he just did. And I don't remember, I was in there for quite a while, right, Heather? I mean, a couple hours. And this guy was confessing his sins. I mean, it was like, I, oh, wow. It was so bad of things that he did that I, no exaggeration, I went home and I took a shower. I felt dirty after hearing everything this guy had done. And he's laying it all out there. And I said, do you think that this is going to change your AIDS report? Like, do you think that you're confessing to a priest here? Do you think I'm a priest and you're confessing? And he said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Right? He's kind of, go, kind of come clean. And, and I said, well, I just want you to know this act has nothing to do with what's going to come out on that report. Second, I'm not a priest. I can't absolve you of anything. I can. But I can tell you what. You can't out the mercy of God. This mercy is, God saves you according to his mercy. He is loaded with so much mercy that there is no way that the human mind could ever sin more than there is mercy. That's the message. This is what this guy needed to hear. You were saved according to the mercy of God. This is the passage we went to. And I showed him this. And I went through my little exercise about according to and out of and tried to explain it. You cannot. This is how merciful God has never allowed Satan to tempt you to think that you can sin beyond, that God would never want you in his presence, that God would... No, you are saved according to his great mercy. I told him this. I remember telling him this. Do you know something? God doesn't love you because you're lovable. He goes, amen to that. I said, God loves you because he's merciful. He is so merciful, he can love you. That's how merciful he is. He's filled with so much love, so much mercy. And here's what Christ did to cover this sin for you. So, he saved us by his goodness, by his loving kindness, by his mercy. But we are not done by his Holy Spirit. Notice what else, man. He keeps going. By the washing of of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Because you say, this guy would say, hey man, I've done all these horrible things. And I would say to him, you, you did. You did all these wretched things. But I want you to know something. God isn't turning his back. God isn't pretending like it's happening. God isn't ignoring it. He's not dealing with the problems the way you deal with problems. Right? He doesn't ignore it. Here's what he does. 
He washes you. And He renews you. Those two words, washing and renewal, it means to make clean and to make new. He cleanses you and He makes you a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 This is what He does. Now how does He do this? The very Spirit of God is given to you and He regenerates you. Regeneration means giving you life. So you're so you're, you're darkened, you're depraved, you're divisive. That's who you are. You're in this horrible place. You're spiritually dead. You don't want to follow God because you're disobedient. You're a fool. You won't follow God. All of these things are there. The Spirit comes in and makes you alive. And when that Spirit comes in your life, He begins to cleanse you and wash you of all the sins that you have done, all the guilt, all the bad memories, all the stuff. You know, as you get older in life, you collect a lot of memories, and a lot of those memories are things you feel guilty about, Right? And some of you wake up in the middle of the night remembering sins you've done and you feel guilty about it. And and here's what the the truth of the gospel is. The Spirit of God has washed you clean. As Jude says in Jude 24, so that you could stand in God's presence blameless. Meaning God isn't looking at those sins, so quit looking at them. The Spirit has washed you clean. It's so beautiful. That's what regeneration is. When He gives you life, He's not giving you life to then just hold you in bondage to your sin. He's given you a life to wash you clean of it. You're clean from it. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He washes you, gives you life, renews you, makes you new. Okay, so, goodness, loving kindness, mercy, spirit, but there's even more, right? Because not only has he did this through Jesus, because you might say, how in the world could I get all of that? Because this guy really did do all those horrible things. This guy really did do these wretchedly horrible things. Things I couldn't even imagine. Things I wish I never heard. This is what this guy did. I'm thinking, okay, how in the world could the Spirit make him alive, wash him clean, give him a new start? That's what verse 6 is. Whom he poured out to on us, richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here's where Christ comes in. Here's what he's saying. He poured this out. God poured out richly, which means he abundantly washes you, abundantly makes you new, abundantly gives you a spirit. There's no spirit hold back, man. You get it all. God just like uh, gives you the whole deal, the whole package. And you say, how did that happen? Through Jesus. That little word through means through what Jesus, Christ means Messiah, the Messiah our Savior, through Jesus, the Messiah, the one who saved us. What does that mean? Well, the reality is mankind is uh, darkened and depraved and divisive. God's response is to say, I need to make up what's lacking here. Because if I don't, they'll burn in hell. So here's what I'm going to do. I'll cover the sin myself. So, I told this guy in my office, every single sin that you did is not going to be absolved by me telling you something to do. Say this prayer four times and help the homeless and give away so much money. It's not going to be absolved because the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. When Christ was on the cross, he took 100% of the consequences right there for you. And this is the reason why God can pour out his spirit on you and make you alive and wash you clean. This is the gospel. The good news of the gospel. This is why it says through Jesus. He's the means. His work on the cross 
is what cleansed you. There is the hope we need to be reminded of and the hope the world needs to be reminded of, right? Some might say, how could God give me His Spirit? I'm too bad of a person. Our response should be, He can give you His Spirit because Christ died and took the consequences. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, someone should have died. Someone needs to bear the wrath of God for your sin. And someone did. His name is Jesus. So Paul's saying, listen, goodness, loving kindness, mercy, Holy Spirit, Jesus, and finally, we see the last way, a part, the last part of this salvation. He saved us by His grace. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The word justified, you could translate it this way, having a standing with God. A right standing. So he's basically saying this way, your standing with the holy, holy God of the world the one who created everything, has come not by works, but by grace. God has given you a seat at His table. Why? Because He wants to. Period. That's it. We didn't earn it. We get it through grace. That's what grace means. A gift, an unearned gift. I get an unearned gift. So he says, so being justified by his grace, not only do I have this great salvation, notice this, I become an heir according to the hope of eternal life. Hey, there's another according to, you should underline that. I become an heir according to the hope. What is the hope of eternal life? That's the whole hope of a new heaven, a new earth, an eternity with God, a place where there's no sin, a place where there's, there's, there's nothing but, but the brilliance of God and, and, and a world that works without any issues, right? Revelation 21 the union of heaven and earth in one. God rules perfectly, brilliantly, and all of the blessings that come for all of eternity. And he says, you become an heir of that. Okay, so why is that important? Because let's cycle back for a moment to what we're being called to do in verses 1 and 2. I want you to obey the government. But what if, what if that means I have to give up something? It might mean that. I want you to serve this person over here, but, but what if it means they take advantage of me? I want you to be kind to this person. Yeah, but the more I'm kind to them, I, I could be an enabler, and they could be being meaner to me, and I might lose something. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You might. You might lose a lot. This calling of verses 1 and 2 means that we walk with humility and it means that on an earthly scale, we will oftentimes get the raw end of the deal. I didn't hear any amens there. <laughs> That's a hard one to say amen to. But on an eternal scale, I'm justified by grace, and I'm an heir of the hope, according to the hope of eternal life. I can live this way because I've got a promise that is better than ripping off my boss and stealing from him and, hey, he's not paying me well, so I'm going to go take a little bit here or there. The government uses my money poorly, so I'm going to cheat on my taxes. and I'm going to be mean to my neighbor because he keeps mowing over into my spot in the lawn, and that's it. I'll show him. You know, I'll get a dog. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so what do you get? Maybe you get your property line perfect. 
Maybe you finally get your taxes, you know, you get justice in some little earthly sense. But, but he's saying that's not the point of our life. And you're a joint heir with Jesus, man. You get a hope of heaven. So, so God wants us to live the gospel and to be agents of this message of hope that the depraved mayor and the depraved city council member and the depraved neighbor and the depraved boss can be lifted from a darkened, depraved, and divisive mindset and get all these promises. And he's sending us to be agents of that message, reminding us that, yes, you're going to get the raw end of the deal, but you're a joint heir with Jesus. Hold on to that hope. Hold on to that hope. So, he saved us by his goodness, his loving kindness, his mercy, his spirit, through Jesus, by grace. That is what God did for us. That's amazing. I am no better than the world. I am no better. And so the challenge is this. I wrote this down this week. Steve, don't be smug in your salvation. That was my personal application. Don't be smug in your salvation. Quit standing in judgment of the culture. Walk in humility that comes from remembering that you were out in the middle of the ocean and you got saved. You are not a better swimmer. You are not a better swimmer. Live in humility. We can't forget this. This is our mission. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this challenging and hope-filled message. You are so good. You are so loving. You're amazing. You're filled with mercy. You sent us your spirit. You sent your son. All because you're a gracious God to redeem us from a darkened, depraved, and divisive mind to be a joint heir with Jesus. What a journey that text takes us on. From depravity to the glories of heaven down a road filled with grace and mercy. Lord, let that be our operating system. Lord, let us not reduce the gospel to just a a saying, a prayer, a series of proposition statements. God, may the gospel transform our life so we would not be arrogant, we would not be prideful, that we would walk with humility, that we remember where we were, we remember where we're going, and we will never forget how we got there. God, let that be true in our lives. Thank you for this passage. May we leave here changed. In Christ's name.